Today's psalm is Psalm 137, 1 through 9. This is in the Common English Bible, and you can find it on page 772 in the Pew Bible. Alongside Babylon's streams, there we sat down, crying, because we remembered Zion. We hung our lyres up in the trees there, because that's where our captors asked us to sing. Our tormentors requested songs of joy. Sing us a song about Zion, they said. But how could we possibly sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? Jerusalem, if I forget you, let my strong hand wither. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you if I don't make Jerusalem my greatest joy. Lord, remember what the Edomites did on Jerusalem's dark day. Rip it down, rip it down all the way to its foundations, they yelled. Daughter Babylon, you destroyer. Blessing on the one who pays you back the very deed you did to us. A blessing on the one who seizes your children and smashes them against the rock. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this summer, as we've been going through the Psalms, I told you early on we'd be hitting some, some hard ones. And this is one of those hard Psalms that we're going to look at today. And uh, part of us understanding the psalm is to actually bring us into the world of the psalmists that wrote it. So I'd like to show you, a, to get us to kind of help us understand and maybe give us a little history lesson as well. I don't, can we, Tim, can we run that video? I want to show you guys a video as we start off this morning. I'm going to talk about it. Uh, this starts out in 1500s, and these uh, dots that you see going across the screen, can you, you'll see them flit across every once in a while. Can you see them back there in the back? It, it'll get clearer as we go on. Put your glasses on if you need to. But these are all the voyages from Africa bearing slaves in the holds of their ships going to North America, the Caribbean, and South America. And this is a time-lapse video sped up over 300 years. Can you see the dots now moving across into Central America and the Caribbean and South America and the United States? And what you're seeing there are all the voyages, over 20,000 slave ship voyages from Africa. You can see them. All of them are coming from Africa. Uh, you can over 12 million slaves were on these ships, on those ship voyages, about 12 and a half million is estimated, maybe more. That's just one estimate. Two million of those slaves never made it to the Americas because they died during the voyage. So one out of every six slaves in the hold died in those holds as they went to the Americas. During that time, um, there was, this was also uh, part of what was happening they, 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 by European countries. So the countries responsible for this were actually uh, Britain, Spain, Portugal, the du Dutch, Netherlands. Uh, there may be a few others. And so they would come down to Africa, take, load up and take Africans into their holds and then sell them 
into slavery in the country. You can just see it just flowing here during the 1700s when it became quite a bit of a trade. And then, uh, interesting, you can see most of them going to the southern part of the United States. Any of those that are going to North America were hitting Savannah in the southern part of our country where most of the slaves were used on the plantations and in growing the crops. And this was economical. There were economic reasons behind this. So you can see that, and it's kind of just, it just is sad to think that millions of people were kidnapped, taken from their homeland, their culture ripped away from them, everything about their lives ripped away, and that's the end of it, 300 years, uh, and that was it. In 1866, and we know that's after the Civil War, Emancipation Proclamation, and things began to change globally at that point. But there was a guy, one of those ships uh, was captained by a man named John Newton. He wrote the hymn that you just heard, Amazing Grace. He wrote that hymn, and it's interesting because John Newton was the captain of one of those ships that took slaves across the Atlantic. Now, when, that was when he was a young man. Uh, later, after in his young adulthood, he became a Christian, and he left the slave trade because he became a Christian. He then became a clergyman, and he became a pastor of a church, and he was tasked with putting together a hymnal. And in that hymnal, he put together a song that was called Faith's Review and Expectation. That was the original title that we know as Amazing Grace. I think Amazing Grace is a better title, <laughs> but we've been indoctrinated that way. You know, we're biased that way, right? So he wrote that hymn, but I want you to notice something about when he wrote the hymn. So remember, he was a slave ship captain in his early young adulthood, and then he became a clergyman. And this is like 15, 20 years later that he writes the hymn. Now, when he writes the words, he puts it to a tune. And if you've seen the movie, there's been a movie about this, about William Wilberforce and the slave and abolitionists. But if you remember the hymn that he put, the tune that he put to the words was a slave song. Think about this. He, as he crossed the Atlantic, what was in his ear every time he crossed the Atlantic? Is exactly what Priscilla did this morning. They were humming this song in the hold of the ship, and it stuck with John Newton. Years later, we're talking 15, 20 years later, he still remembers the tune that he heard the slaves humming in the holds of the ships. And he took that tune and he put these words to it. But I don't know if he knew this. Maybe he did know this and he understood this. But that tune that they were singing was not a joyful tune. It was a song of sorrow. It was a song of grief. It was a song of pain. It was a song of hardship. They weren't singing a joyful song. They were singing a hard ache, an achy song of hardship and grief and sorrow that was coming from the inside of them. That's why I, I love the way that Priscilla sang this morning because it was more in line with how it would have been sung in the ship hold of those slave voyages coming across Maybe God wants to do something beautiful, even in that idea of bringing 
this lyrics and this tune together. Because, <laughs> you know, one day we're all going to be together in heaven, singing and worshiping together regardless of our race, regardless of the color of our skin. And that's the, the view and the hope of heaven. But why did John Newton, I just want to side note here, this is, we're going to get into the psalm, but I just want to take a side note because I hear a lot of talk about how, you know, Christianity supported slavery in America. And there are certainly that is true in some parts of America. But those who are true scholars of the Word of God, like John Newton and others and William Wilberforce and others, when you study the Word of God, you come across verses like this in Deuteronomy. One says, don't return slaves to its owners if they're escaped and come to you. They can stay with you in your community or any place they select from one of your cities, whatever seems good to them. <laughs> Don't oppress them. So, so we're actually to be, if a, a slave does escape from slavery, that we're supposed to welcome them and care for them and not oppress them. This is right out of the Old Testament. And this would have been speak, spoken and written by people who were once slaves in slavery in Egypt. And so this was a Something else. Here's another one from Deuteronomy, which says, If someone is caught kidnapping their fellow Israelites, intending to enslave the Israelite or sell them, that kidnapper must die. Remove such evil from your community. Now, you could say, well, it's just about Israelites, but I would say that in God's perspective, it was about all people. We, we know Jesus said, love your neighbor not just your Israelites, right? So there's this idea here, even in the Old Testament, that people who study the Old Testament would have known that, that, that this idea of slavery and kidnapping and selling people into slavery was, was not something that God ordained or God intended. And yet that's exactly where we find ourselves in the psalm this morning. The psalm is written by people who have been taken from their homeland and held captive in another country in a foreign land called Babylon. And they're actually made to work the fields in Babylon, in southern Babylon. They're working the fields. Now, the people that were taken there were temple musicians, worship leaders in the temple. So if you could imagine the worship leaders, the the ones that were playing the guitar and the drums and singing in worship were the ones that were taken away and enslaved in a foreign land to dig ditches, irrigation ditches, off of the river in Babylon to irrigate the fields for fruit trees. They were, in a sense, like migrant workers, moving around, digging ditches, planting trees, doing the things that we often see in our own world. And it was there that this psalm came about. You got that now? You, you, you got that? Worship leaders digging ditches, irrigation ditches in a river, alongside a river in Babylon. So now let's reread the beginning of that psalm. It says, alongside Babylon's streams, there we sat down crying because we remembered Zion. We hung our lyres up in the trees there because that's where our captors asked us to sing. Our tormentors requested songs of joy. Sing us a song about Zion, they said. But how could we possibly sing the Lord's song on a foreign soil? 
I think one of the things this psalm is about is it's, it's about grief. It's about not just grief of losing a loved one, but it's the grief that accompanies powerless suffering. So it's grief, it's loss, but it's also we're powerless to do anything about the loss and the grief that we're feeling. We have no control over this. We can't do anything about it. We're powerless. We're suffering. We can't even sing anymore. And especially if you come to us, our captors, our tormentors come to us and ask us to sing a song, how can we do that? Has any, has any, when you're sad, when you're in grief, has anybody ever come to you and said, hey, cheer up? You ever heard that? Or how about, oh, get over it? Or how about, I think it's time to move on. Anybody ever hear those phrases, right? And when, but when you're, when you're powerless and when you're feeling in grief, in grief and loss, those words <laughs> fall short, don't they? They don't, they don't really resonate, right? Can I make a confession to you today? As a, as a, and I, and I'm, I'm not going to speak on behalf of everybody, but I can speak on, my, on behalf of my own experience. You know, as, as a white male American, I will watch, I've watched over the years uh, racism in America, right? And I've seen it, and I've, I have a, so I say this to say that I have a white male perspective on this. But here's my confession. I have often said that same thing. Well, why can't we just move on? Has anybody ever said that? <laughs> yeah, why can't we just move on? Why can't we just cheer up and move on and go on with life? <laughs> Like, you know, everything's better, right? I mean, that's what I'm thinking. As a white person in America, I was like, why can't we just get over this, right, and move on as a nation? And, and I think about that because I think, here's, what I, here's some of my past thinking is Emancipation Proclamation. Abraham Lincoln, Republican president, wrote the Emancipation Proclamation. Slaves were freed. We got that, you know, pat myself on the back. Or 55 years ago, Segregation, desegregation happened. We as a nation uh, desegregated, and that was just this past week that we remembered the anniversary of that date and pat ourselves on, pat Matt on the back. Or we elected a black president, right? Wow. Why can't we move on? Why can't we keep moving forward? Because no matter what laws we change, hearts have not. No matter what laws have, have put, been put on the books in our nation, there are still hearts that are devaluing other human beings in our world, like these worship leaders being tormented by the rivers of Babylon being told to sing a song of joy. That's not what they can do. Now, if you think racism doesn't exist in America or you've kind of distanced yourself or I might have distanced myself or I was reminded of this two weeks ago. Same week, two things happened. Friends of ours, people who we know. A couple friends of ours that were at a beach in, in, uh, on the Atlantic coast. Uh, she, is a, she is a white woman. Her husband is a black man. They have two young boys that are mixed race. And they're at the beach on vacation. 
when another mother, a white woman, comes over to their children, their two boys, their mixed-race boys, and asks them who their parents were. And they said, well, that's, those are my parents over there, that, that man and that woman. And, they, and the woman began to talk to the kids and then talk to the mom about, are these really your kids? Why would you do this to these kids? Why would you have kids? Why would you marry this man? She was confronting this white, this white woman was confronting another white woman on the beach, on vacation, minding her own business, right? You want to say racism doesn't exist? Well, I can't say that after that happened to my friend. Or take, for example, a colleague of mine, African-American pastor in Detroit. He's a, he's a pastor of a large church. He's doing pretty well. He lives in a gated community in Detroit. Probably he has reasons for that in his, that part of Detroit. He's driving home from church one evening after a meeting. This happened the same week of the other incident. He drives into his uh, gated community, and this police officer begins to follow him into his gated community, follows him in past the gate, follows him as he winds his way towards his house. Then as he gets closer to his house, flips the lights on, pulls him over in his own driveway. He stays in the car, hands on the wheel. Police officer comes over. He says, did I do anything wrong? Did I run a stop sign in the neighborhood? Was I speeding when I came up to my neighborhood? Did I do anything wrong? The officer said, no, you didn't do anything wrong. You just look suspicious. And then he said, you mean because I'm black? He said, no, 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 no. It's because you look suspicious. You mean because I'm a black man in a mostly white community? And I couldn't possibly be living here. He actually went and reported that to the station the next day. But it is clear that it was the color of his skin. Because I will say to you, if that had been me, that would not have happened. I don't believe that would have happened. I believe that police officer would have kept on going. So there is racism still existing in the hearts of people, regardless of whether it's intended or not happening among us. And it creates pain, like the people who wrote this song. It torments people because they do want to move on. These captors want to be returned back to their homeland. They want to go back to Zion. They want to go back to Jerusalem. They want to go back to worshiping God. They want to go back to what they know, but they can't. They're powerless. So what do they have to do? What are they trying to do? Well, actually, I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to hold on to God in a godless place. <laughs> That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to hold on to God when everybody around them is ridiculing them, tormenting them, worshiping other gods, and, say, and they're trying to hold on, right? Because they know what it is to worship their God. They know what it is to have faith in God. Notice these are worship leaders. Notice what the worship leaders say about this. They say, Jerusalem, city of God, if I forget you, let my strong hand wither. What's the strong hand they're talking about as worship leaders? That strong hand that played the lyre, right? And my tongue, what, what, what are they doing with their tongue as worship leaders? They're singing praise to God. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you, God, Yahweh, if I don't make Jerusalem my greatest joy. They're trying to hold on to God. 
They're trying to hold on to their faith. They're not quitters. They're not giving up, even if they can't go home. You see, they want to hold on to that. Now, recently, if you've been following any Christian-related news, you notice that there's been two high-profile Christian leaders that have come out and renounced their faith. Josh Harris is one of them. Josh Harris is known mostly for writing a book from my day, back in the day, called Why I Kiss Dating Goodbye. It's about courtship and not kissing until you get married. Didn't work for me. I'd never read the book. <laughs> my wife was too beautiful. <laughs> so I didn't do that, but I didn't describe that. But he was a pastor near where I grew up. And he, they, they, planted, they were part of a very large megachurch where I grew up. And he was very popular, well-known. He was a pastor, a leader. He just recently renounced his faith and is in the process of separating and divorcing his wife. Along that line, same time period, another guy uh, from a worship leader at Hillsong, worship leader Marty Sampson, has questioned his faith. And he kind of came out and said that he's leaving the faith, but then he retracted that and he's not sure about his faith. So I'm thinking, what's going on? Do you ever think that? Like, what's going on? Why can't people hold on in a godless land? And then I think about another guy, another pastor I read about this week named Pastor Chow, who's a pastor in China who's been running a house church in secret in China and was arrested for being a pastor. And because he would not denounce his faith in Jesus Christ, he was just sentenced to seven years in prison. Seven years in prison. And I'm going, what's going on with Pastor Chow and Josh Harris? Why does Pastor Chow have this deep, committed, abiding faith and Josh Harris seems to be lost? What's going on? And I began to think about that. And I've been thinking about what's going on with these worship leaders in the psalm. And I think about how they were the same as Pastor Chow. They've been taken from their home. They've been taken from the temple. They can no longer worship God. They've been taken far away. They're not able to do the things that they were God had called them to do. And they were committed to God even though they were digging ditches. And I thought about, is there something about being in the spotlight that's all-consuming? Is it, is it, I began to ask this question, and I don't, this is the question I came up with. Do we unconditionally love and worship God, or do we like being loved and worshiped because of our service to God? Because I think the Israelite worship leaders in Babylon understood what it was to unconditionally love and worship God. They weren't worried about their fame. They weren't worried about being known in the temple they weren't having to put on a show every time, right? Which is what Josh Harris and Marty Sampson had to keep doing week after week after week. How do I make it better than last week? Because see, I don't think God's worried with us being famous. I think God's worried about us being faithful. I don't think God wants us to be famous. I think God wants us to be faithful, and that's what this psalm is about, is about faithfulness to God in a place that is faithless. But if we keep reading, 
You know, even though the, the crowds are gone, but if we keep reading, we get to that hard part of the psalm. This is the hardest part. The psalm starts out beautiful, doesn't it? <laughs> and it ends so hard. It says this, Daughter Babylon, you destroyer, a blessing on the one who pays you back the very deed you did to us, a blessing on the one who seizes your children and smashes them against the rock. Now, one of the things, I chose CEB today because it says blessing because another translation has happy. And that's a little bit harder to take. Happy is the one who does this, right? They're actually saying blessing to the one who brings about justice for us. That's what they're talking about. They're, they're saying, will you, God, bring about justice for us? Will you bring about this justice for us? We want to, because we're powerless. We, 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 ha- we can't do anything about the injustice that we're suffering in Babylon but God, you're the only one we have left to turn to for justice. And they're asking for justice. Now, the reason it's so hard, we can leave that verse up, but the reason this verse is so hard is because we forget that we're under the New Testament. So we look at it from New Testament perspective. But in the Old Testament, what was happening here was this idea that eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? So what they're asking for is justice, They're saying, God, will you do what they did to us? So you have to remember that the Edomites, who were the daughter of Babylon, came in, they stripped down Jerusalem, tore tore it down to its foundations, and then they did that to the Israelite babies. And so what the Israelites are grieving and in pain and suffering because they've lost children, and they simply want God to do justice for them. Do to them what was done to us, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The reason that justice system was created in the Old Testament was to make sure that the punishment fit the crime so that people didn't escalate the punishment. Because, hey, if you take one eye, I'm going to take two years because that's our human nature to want to escalate. If you don't believe me, I'll tell you some stories about me and my brother. (laughs) You know, if he hit me, I was going to hit him harder back. See what I'm saying? If you've ever been in a sibling relationship, you know what I'm talking about. There's this idea, not just of punishment fitting the crime, but you're going to double down on getting them back, right? That's what that law was trying to prevent. But we as New Testament Christians have new teaching on this. (laughs) And what's the new teaching? Jesus Jesus actually said something else. He said, and this is all under this idea, he says, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you that you must not oppose those who want to hurt you. If people slap you on the right cheek, you must turn the left cheek to them as well. So what Jesus was teaching was non-retaliation. And I would tell you this, this is both for the Old Testament, Babylonian, uh, the exiles in Babylon, and for Jesus' teaching. Here's what I think they both are aiming at that we surrender our justice to God. That we surrender our needs for justice to God. That we entrust those things to God, especially when we're powerless. There are times, though, when we're not powerless, we then need to confront and speak truth to power and do that, I think, of the Reverend, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. We forget the Reverend part in the secular society. But he was basing some of his civil disobedience and nonviolent protests on the teachings of Jesus of non-retaliation. That's what part of his learning and where he was going with that. So I think about that, this idea of 
retaliation is really that I'm going to surrender my need. I'm going to surrender my grief. I'm going to surrender my need for justice to God who is ultimately, ultimately in control. Because the Israelites knew that just as a king came into power in Babylon, God could arrange for a new king to take over. And things could change for them, and they did. Later on, another king comes into power, frees them. They go back to Jerusalem. Not only does that king free them, but that king resources them as they go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls, to rebuild their homes, to bless them as they go back home. They got a leader. They entrusted their God to put that leader in place, and they did that. You know, back to my friends on the beach You wonder how they handled that situation, don't you? They're now being confronted, being accused of whatever because of their race and their kids' race. And they're Christians. And they love God. And they are some of the most joyful people I know. And they handled it well. And they handled it with love and grace. They did not retaliate. They did not get mad back. They did not say, how dare you? But they stood their ground. They stood firm. They act with grace and love towards this white woman who was accusing them of, who was just being mean and nasty and even talking to other kids around them about not playing with their kids. But they just stood up for themselves with love and grace. They didn't try and get even. And their boys saw that. And I'm proud of the way they handled the situation. I'm proud of the way that they acted with love and grace in a very difficult situation because they're Christians. I don't know if I would have acted that way, but I'm glad that they did. That they wanted to show their children, this is how you respond to mean people in the world. And uh, we pray for them. And let's pray this morning.